Prada, one of the most coveted luxury brands in the fashion world, beloved by, well, basically everyone. In the 90s, what was once a leather goods house for the Italian aristocracy and plutocracy suddenly took centre stage. I wear a prouder suit sometimes for award ceremonies, and it's my lucky suit. When I first started making money, my first investment was a beautiful Prada bag. Prada shoes of my own as well. Some of the some of the uh, lace-up sneaker type shoes. Comedy. It was just ubiquitous. Even if you didn't have a Prada backpack, you knew about a Prada backpack. And if you were watching fashion TV, you would see, you know, the models with that. The difference between like and love. Because I like my Skechers, but I love my Prada backpack. But I love my Skechers. That's because you don't have a Prada backpack. I mean, anyone that was sort of remotely interested in fashion couldn't help but notice how brilliant they were, right? It fits a woman's body, but it's also cool and hip and the styles are fresh and you feel like, like I said, you feel like you're special. You know, it's really good. And the force behind Prada's overwhelming success is Mucha Prada. In her own words, a woman who first resisted, then accepted, and then embraced the role of fashion designer. A woman who challenged traditional notions of beauty and luxury. A woman who single-handedly created a fashion revolution from within. Welcome to In Vogue, the 1990s, a podcast about a pivotal time that ushered in a new era in fashion and in culture. Join us as we examine the defining moments of the decade that shape fashion as we know it today. We'll hear from fashion leaders, cultural icons, and Vogue's own editorial team. I'm Anna Winter. And I'm Hamish Bowles, Vogue's international editor-at-large and your host. I present myself. I am Yucha Prada. I am officially fashion designer. I think that probably I'm much more in myself, but that is my job, and that is what probably we are going to talk about. Yes, Mucha Prada is officially a fashion designer, but the qualities that turned her and the Italian luxury brand she inherited into icons of the 1990s were all of the other things about her. She transformed Prada by embracing the parts of herself that were interested in the reaches far beyond the fashion world. Why do you think Prada was at the centre stage in this way? And how did you see your, your role and your responsibility as a designer at that moment? You know, for me, it's difficult because uh, I usually let the other analyse myself. I, I think, I do, but I really give little time to analyse what I'm, what I'm doing. So back then, probably because I open up, for sure I open up many windows. I open up the reality, I would say. That probably was the reason. Mucha Prada was born in 1949. Her grandfather, Mario Prada, had founded his storied luxury product house around the turn of the century. Prada had established itself primarily as a producer and vendor of very fine leather goods and accessories, favoured by Italy's aristocracy and haute bourgeoisie. In fact, Prada became the official supplier of leather goods to the Italian royal family, cementing its status. But that was my grandfather, basically, who, who was somebody who collected and, and, and made special stuff around the world. 
and after, after the war, uh, he, he was sick and so the, the, the job declined. But historically, it, it was beginning of the century, so it was about uh, super rich ivory, tartar shell, silver, glass, uh, so all this kind of object. But when Mucha Prada, or Mrs Prada, as she is known in the fashion world, took the helm towards the end of the 1970s, she chafed against that reputation. When I started my job, uh, it was against the existing bourgeois concept of luxury. So I, I was against uh, the famous uh, rich brand. I was always thinking that I don't want only to work for an, a sophisticated elite because it's kind of too easy for me. So to have a niche, I know the one who, who have this kind of taste and so on, so it would be too easy for me. So I, I, I wanted and more and more I want to open myself to the, the variety of people. Also now, now the world is much more large. You have to face different civilization, different race, different religions, all the differences. Mrs. Prada's new conception for her family's brand was in part inspired by her own interests in leftist Italian politics. As a university student studying political science, she famously wore Yves Saint Laurent to protests. Initially, she believed that her political leanings did not align with the principles of the fashion industry at all. Actually, back then I was uncertain if going on in my kind of, let's say, political career, but I was so much attracted by object and by beauty that even if back then in the, in the 70s, to be a fashion designer was the worst job I could ever do because it was politically not correct. Being leftist in, in Italy in that moment was kind of normal uh, because uh, any, any kind of young person, uh, if you were vaguely, vaguely intelligent, <laughs> it was like that. But although she never fully abandoned her commitment to leftist politics, she felt another desire tugging at her, a longing for beauty. So the dichotomy by, by my ideas and my appreciation of uh, beauty and fashion. But I have to say that even if I was against in principle, I loved it. So at the end, I did it. At that point, Mrs. Prada's mother had been leading the brand since the death of her grandfather. And when Mrs. Prada replaced her mother in the late 70s, there was an aesthetic or codes for the brand that she still wanted to maintain. My mother was very much like, not liking fashion, but liking quality, liking uh, clothes, but in a very, very simple and, uh, and, and, modest and understated way. I have to say that I inherited her taste and the taste of my second mother, who was her sister. So I realized with the time that I inherited that, even if they were very severe, so no rich dresses, no... In I was just born in the 50s, so no rich dresses, no pink, no, and it's nothing, nothing fancy. Uh, so blue, white, <laughs> modest. Fashion designer Lawrence Steele, who moved to Milan in the mid-80s and worked with Mrs. Prada, remembers visiting the Prada store. The thing about Prada was that it was this beautiful, it is still this beautiful store, gorgeous and sumptuous in its antiquity, but it was filled with a mix of Mucha's grandfather's um, luggage and objects that he had collected over his lifetime that he was selling there, and Mucha's creations, which were these minimalist, modern, kind of travel bags, suitcases, 
backpacks in this black nylon, these geometric kind of nylon shopping bags, little little jewels of of of, of contemporary design mixed into these kind of like older, kind of historical, kind of luxurious bourgeois other accessories. And this juxtaposition was something for me that was was unique. I'd never seen anything like it. Prada would still represent the high quality standards that had built the beloved brand. But Mrs. Prada, with her varied interests, particularly in politics and society, quietly channeled her own ideas about culture into her work as a fashion designer. Besides Saint Laurent, but I, I was uh, dressed in, in vintage, vintage Chanel, vintage Dior, vintage, vintage in general, or uniform, or clothes for children, anything that was inappropriate. That is when I decided maybe I had to do the dresses by myself because I didn't find anything I liked in the market. So after 10 years dressing inappropriate clothes or vintage, after I started doing my own clothes. So I think that I was the first designer who did vintage in my first shows. And I was very much criticized because uh, that was the moment of the big designers. So me doing simple stuff, if you look at my first show, it shows it very clearly. Mrs. Prada's first collection was for fall, winter 1988-1989. And it is, as she says, simple, almost radically so. There was an early 1960s vintage flavour to the unstructured boxy jackets and full coats, worn with tapered capri pants or knee-length bouffant skirts, and to the little black or hot pink shift dresses. It's a new proposition in the face of high 80s opulence, unquestionably elegant, decidedly understated. She was innovative in her choice and use of fabrics. And even in accessories, I start with nylon, making it super expensive with passamantri, with crocodile, but using a material that was the opposite of the, the typical bourgeois. This nylon, I think she used, had technical, military grade, maybe used for tents or something. Led Brelli Person, Vogue's archive editor. I think that the functionality of it was unexpected. It had very much of a presence as an object. I mean, it was a it was a thing. It was a design object. I mean, it looked architectural or, you know, like product design somehow. But then she did do a collection where she did little black dresses in, and I believe they were done in nylon. So it tickles me that this is a military fabric and that a cocktail dress made up in a military fabric becomes a suit of armor as well as a, a means of seduction, possibly. She was taking fabrics that hadn't been used in this context before and reimagining them, reworking them. And it wasn't just nylon, but also other synthetics like polyester. It was seemed like such an obvious jump to go to polyester. Lawrence Steele again. Polyester exists and, you know, no one's looking there, but it, there's a whole history of polyester in the 60s and 70s and horrendous colours and stuff like that. It took being conscious of what everyone was doing, what was going on in the world, to say, no, we're turning left here, so this is another direction. And she continued to challenge us with her collections. Tidy 60s double-faced wool mini-dresses and wrap coats for Fall 91. 
Flower-scattered or rick-rack-trimmed Jacqueline Kennedy sportswear separates for spring 92. Hippie-themed denim-stitched linen or fringed dresses to the ankle worn with chokers and free-flying hair or beanie hats in 93. 1940s-flavoured uniform suits and sheer organza dresses for spring 1994. Shapely, narrow-skirted suits in slubbed silk or nylon for spring 1995. It stood out and made a statement, and perhaps most importantly, it recast what we thought about luxury fabrics, and by extension, what we thought about luxury and beauty as a whole. Basically introducing life and different, different clothes and different vision and the, the badness of life outside the luxury world, which was something that was present in movies, that was present in art, that was present everywhere except in fashion. Believe it or not, I very rarely talk about uh, the process. Uh, I, I think that I was, what I was really aiming is changing from inside the system of the bourgeoisie. Back then the bourgeoisie still had a, had a sense, but I was always very attracted by it and because it was my world. And, and so how to break from inside the system of what was considered beauty. And this challenge to traditional notions of beauty was perfectly captured in the Prada Spring-Summer 96 collection, Banal Eccentricity, which featured models like Kate Moss, Amber Valletta and Krista McNemany marching down the runway in what were then considered hideously clashing print combinations in Chartres greens, dark purples and muddy browns, colours that were wrangled into clashing patterns on housecoats and shirt dresses and rendered into plaids and stripes with a hand-drawn flavour. The bad, the bad, famous bad taste that actually for me was super, super fantastic taste. <laughs> it was a show that utterly eschewed trends and introduced a whole new fashion paradigm which was soon dubbed Ugly Chic. It was not how we traditionally understood beauty or glamour or sexiness. It was something entirely different. And I would say that fashion was a little bit uh, not open to that, to that sense of call it not beautiful, not, un- not appealing. Till now there is, I think, a resistance to, to what is not beautiful, uh, as a cliche of beauty. And that was very much discussed, very, very much criticized, but also after appreciated. And that was the collection that really cemented Mrs. Prada's reputation, at least initially, as an intellectual designer, a label the fashion industry deploys for collections or shows that subvert traditional trends or norms or refuse to conform to traditional perceptions of beauty. And for designers who offer up something a a, a bit more complex and perhaps unappealing, even unpalatable at first glance. But is that really the best way to characterise Mrs. Prada? You're often described as a as an intellectual designer. What does that mean to you? And, and do you embrace I, that description? <laughs> <laughs> because usually intellectual design is boring. And I like fun and I like uh, funny stuff. And I am very diverse in, in, in what I like. I can be a day serious, the next day totally stupid. I like to experiment all the differences of human emotion, let's say so. So uh, intellectual designer is too reductive. 
by far too reductive. <laughs> I'm more fun than that. <laughs> Mucha Prada rebels against the labels too. More after the break. Hey, run-through listeners. Are you curious about what goes on behind the scenes at Vogue and in the world of fashion? Join Vogue Club, a one-of-a-kind fashion community where you can unlock exclusive access to Vogue editors, industry players, and fellow members, as well as receive expert style advice, tickets to VIP events, hand-picked gifts, and so much more. Visit VogueClub.com today and get 20% off using promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. That's VogueClub.com, promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. It sounds funny to talk about it, intellectual fashion, because what is it? This is Laird Borelli-Person, Vogue's archive editor. Not to suggest that sexy designers aren't intelligent, but I think that the first thing that hits you might not necessarily be the the form of the person wearing the clothes. It's it's more maybe maybe you notice the design first rather than the you know the physique. You know, you can imagine like a Bond girl or a Helmut Newton, you know, lady with these little 1930s lingerie sets and a chain link dress over a sweater and uh, I believe a see-through raincoat. I mean, it was super sort of belle du jour, that kind of, you know, very subtle sexiness. So it's not that she doesn't show the body. It's that she's expanding our concept of what sexy could mean in fashion, resisting yet another cliché. And part of this is that Mrs Prada was bringing her own gaze to her body of work in an industry that was dominated by men. Fashion critic and journalist Susie Menkes. Unlike so many designers, and certainly Italian designers, she did not set out producing women's clothes to please men. I'm sure a lot of them did please men because among what she did were some really beautiful pieces as she does today. But there wasn't that sense of making clothes that is so, I mean, that's Italian thing, of making things that are beautiful and sexual allure and all those things. Mucha Prada has always been for women, for the strength of women, for women wearing the clothes they choose for their kind of lives. But I was interested in probably in analysing the life of women. That is something that I always like, no? the complexity of a woman, the complexity of life, the, the many possibilities for you to be in different women in different moments and playing with the different roles. One day you want to be in a way, one day you want to be in another one according to your mood, according to, to what you want to express and tell to others. And Mrs. Prada sought to translate that complexity, this understanding of the limitations, boundaries and choice, or lack thereof, that many women face, into her clothes. Led Borelli Person reminds us that Mrs. Prada has very tangible experience expressing ideas through movement in the world. Five years of training and performing as a mime at Milan's Piccolo Teatro. This is conjecture, but seeing as Mrs. Prada studied to be a mime, I think you need to work harder in her clothes. I think she doesn't... You have to work for it. You have to interpret what the message is, and there are different ways of interpreting it. I think mimes are very aware 
of boundaries. I mean, the, the most famous mime thing is to pretend that they're, you know, feeling a wall or a window, right? And I think that for women, women's role in society has often felt very bordered or to have boundaries. Like there are things that you can and can't do, freedoms that you have and do not have as a woman. So each shape and each piece was meaningful of a way of being, of being a woman. So everything was, uh, every shape, every piece was representing a way of being a woman. So it was not interested in, in changing, in changing, in inventing shapes like an, an architectural shape. This sort of dialogue was present at every stage of Mrs. Prada's creative process, an internal tug of war this is one of the things that the subject that I am more discussing between myself about how much you have to talk, how much you don't, how much you have to be active, and how much you have to resist for a kind of a sense of shame. That's why I like less dresses because it's more difficult to express complexity in one piece. So the combination of pieces, that's why I'm always dressing to part. As designer Lawrence Steele recalls. You can sense a passage from one thought to another that then relate in some way and create a tension. And that's a conversation and that's where the intellect comes from. It's an intellect that regards beauty. It's an intellect that regards culture. It's, it's, it's a playing with things that existed. We have you know, touched upon her intellectuality about fashion. But actually, your response to her clothes and the show is very emotional. Lucinda Chambers, former fashion director at British Vogue, worked with Mrs Prada in the early 90s. I remember, like for years at Vogue, I kind of wouldn't ever conceive of a story to do until I had seen Prada. Not because I wanted to do exactly what Prada was doing, but because it gave me a kind of emotional response to... Okay, yes, it allowed you to free range around fashion. And, and she set this sort of benchmark every season. And so it, it was a high benchmark, you know, it was a very high benchmark. And I think what you always felt was whether you liked it or not, it had a point of view. I think a lot of people felt that she had more to offer than just handbags and clothes. She had a thought process, which, I mean, this is true. Fashion critic Susie Menkes again. That was reflecting what was going on in the wider world and particularly what was happening for women. And that meant that she was endeared by a a lot of people who were interested in her clothes but also interested in herself. That probably it was the result of my my personal contradiction to, to, to start with something against the cliché of luxury and bourgeoisie, and also what makes a, a, a woman beautiful in, in, in a way that also because of my ideas, for me, it was like ob- object woman. So a beauty that would be independent. But uh, back then, you ju- I just did it instinctively without so many thought. After I, I reflected on it, and all my work was based on this idea against the, the cliché of beauty, against the cliché of luxury, against the cliché of banality, basically. That same desire to rebel, to challenge high fashion and bourgeois values, influences every aspect of Mrs Prada's design process, from the material she uses to the silhouettes she creates and to her choice of artistic collaborators. 
and these changes all started by looking at her own interests. From the beginning, you were profoundly involved in the contemporary art world. Was that something that you folded into your work as a designer? They didn't want to touch a political subject with my job, but I was interested in the political and social aspect of life. So I kind of um, divided the two. I kept really radical differences. Probably too much because, of course, in my, in my mind, it's always the same, but I never wanted to, to quote artists and to mention artists because I want to dedicate to, to the art the serious part of myself. Now I'm changing idea because I see that every, the life is one and, I, and the world is one and, and each field has a, is a part of the whole. But at the beginning, I was very, very reluctant. And I think that for many years, the people in the fashion world didn't even know that I was doing it because I really wanted to keep separate. And I think that was one of the really nice things of working with her is that very few of the conversations were actually about fashion. Photographer Glenn Lutchford shot campaigns with Prada in the 90s. It was always about literature or art or philosophy, or, you know, very sort of fascinating conversationalist, brilliant person. So then to see Muture using these incredibly bold patterns and prints and cutting them in a very different way, so it just seemed very contemporary at the time. But as the world began to undergo globalization, a process that began in the 90s, Mrs. Prada's internal dialogue, her attention to the complexities and details in her own life, were also exposed to a growing global stage. Until the probably the 80s, Fashion was part of a small, of a small group of people. And so people who share less and less, because of course at the beginning of the century, in the 20s, in the 30s, it was really an elite. After it started enlarging, but still there was one sense, one, one community that were able to buy stuff and so on. One, only one, basically white, European mainly. And that all started to change in the 90s Milan fashion scene. The rising popularity of air travel, the invention of the internet, meant that more people were communicating on a global platform. And this opened up a whole new realm for fashion. That's difficult, but in general for all the designers, because until you work for a close number, it's easy. And when you, you want to open up, because, it, because you, you want, because it's much more interesting, because it's part of the world now, and also this uh, revolution of the internet, of course, is even more everything altogether. I think something was happening across Europe where younger people were getting on the scene. Lawrence Steele again. The previous houses were run by a generation that had been around for 10 or 15 years, and this was a new generation who was looking at it from the outside, absorbing it, mixing it, because we were looking at it all. We were looking at punk, you know, we were looking at the Japanese, we were looking at the French and the, the va-va-voom kind of creativity. And so I think that you could just feel in general that the Olympics had opened up or something like that. And for Mrs. Prada, someone who puts so much thought into each piece of clothing or accessory that she designs, her internal dialogue expanded. It was something creatives across all fields faced in the 90s how to comprehend the sheer level of communication and exposure and reality that was at our fingertips, and to find new ways to reach people. How can you respond to the world if you know nothing about the world? 
And how can you know enough? But I think that that is a problem, not only uh, it's a problem of the art, it's a problem of the politics, it's a problem of, of, of right, it's a problem of everybody to have to deal with the incredible vastity and uh, uh, multitudes and the impossibility basically to be able to know everything. You are open to the whole world, so you can't just do what, whatever you like in a superficial way because everything has a meaning, everything has a, a sense. So I would say that is much more difficult, but at the same time, much more probably meaningful or, or interesting. And so to, you have to simplify, which is another big problem for myself. How can, life is complex. Uh, the world is complex. How can, and people always ask you to simplify. And until which point you can simplify until saying nothing. From a creative point of view, do you think that it's the responsibility of a fashion designer to reflect a moment in time through their clothes or to anticipate the future or, or both of those things? For sure you are responding to what's happening or, or what you want it to happen. And also I, I would say a lot also to how you would like people being dressed. So it's a mix of, the, of, of, of all. You basically, yes, you respond to your life, to the reality that is around you, that the reality that you know is there, and you trying to do something that is meaningful at the moment. It's true that recently, because fashion became so pop, popular, that you are asked to be politician, an expert in social stuff, expert in everything, I hate being opinionist. People are asking us too much. But at the same time, you start kind of feeling the responsibility of it. So again, it's something that I am in the process of elaborating this and how I really want to respond to this. If saying, no, listen, I am a fashion designer and I'm not an opinionist at the same time because the influence of fashion is so important. You also feel that you... I think that with your job, you already do it. I, I think that I, I should do my political work through the, my job. I describe job like my life, so it's part of my life because my job and my, all my interests is my life at the end. And yet this willingness to embrace the changes and challenges of the expanding world is also what brought the Prada brand into the global public consciousness. And, and she knows how to pull things from all over, very eclectic. Um, and yet very feminine, and there's always a, a feel of something old, but then there's always a modern twist, so. And it's never really left. How old it is, it's always a classic, and those are the kind of clothes I shop for, and those are the kind of clothes that Prada has. But the things that preoccupied her still preoccupy her to this day, I think. Lucinda Chambers again. You know, about being not bourgeois, but also loving being a bit bourgeois, but being ironical and about being intellectual and about going against the grain, about frivolity versus intellectual, you know, fashion and about gimmicky things for the sake of it and serious things. I think those kind of tropes of hers have run through her whole career. And yet what's so amazing is that even though they feel so much sort of, sort of worlds apart, that you can say that something's really Prada, you know, and something's very Mucha Prada, and it has, she has such a handwriting. 
And at the end of the day, what do you think as a designer, what do you, what do you find meaningful about fashion? In a very simple way, I would say that uh, I am doing clothes, clothes for people. I would like to be reductive about my role because I, I, I would like to perceive myself like somebody that do just clothes and the clothes make people feel a bit better if you are lucky. So it's an instrument in the hand of people between a thousand of other instruments. You provide something that in any case goes near to your body. It's what you are presented to the world. So it's relevant in the sense that you are, fashion has a great part in making people feel mentally confident or become physical confident and to be instrument for, for life, basically. But Mrs. Prada saw that for many people, clothes also mean something more than just something you wear, that her consumers, just like her, also wrestle with these questions of how to think about the role of politics and art and fashion and culture in our everyday lives, and that sometimes clothing, fashion is the best instrument to express the contradictions that are part of all our lives. In Vogue, the 1990s, is presented by Anna Winter and produced by Jasmine Aguilera, Julia Doyle, Kinsey Clark, Tarka Zen and Megan Lubin. Edited by Maura Waltz. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Mixed by Rainhouse. In Vogue's editorial team is Laird Borelli Person, Mark Holgate, Nicole Phelps, and myself. Special thanks to Creative Editorial Director Mark Reducci, Digital Director Annalisa Yabsley, and Vice President of Audio Julie Shen. Please do subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find additional information, incredible imagery, and episode references in the show notes or at vogue.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Hamish Bowles. Until next week, in Vogue. <laughs>